All right, everybody, we're coming to you from the Teach a Kid to Read studios from an, for another episode of Teach a Kid to Read podcast. I'm Tony, as always. Today, we are with a new friend of mine named Ron Fairchild. Ron, just a second, I'm going to try and introduce you here. And um, Forgive me if I do this poorly, but uh, Ron is the founder of the Smarter Learning Group. Before that, he was the CEO of the National Summer Learning Association and of the National Center for Summer Learning at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, Ron is also a senior consultant with the Campaign for Grade Level Reading, and I'm sure we'll get into campaign quite a bit during our conversation. Um, Ron, thank you for being here. It's so great well, to have you. Thanks for having me, Tony. It's been did a I, pleasure I, getting to know you, and I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Did I screw up that intro at all? Not at all. No, you, it was great. And okay. um, yeah, so um, just I, I left out the personal though. You know, you're a human being. You uh, human. you love trees. <laughs> Any yeah. Um, so yeah, I live in I live in Maryland. Um, I'm a father of two um, adult children. Um, two boys that are about to be married in the next year. And, wow. Um, yeah. So um, uh, so yeah, I'm uh, really looking forward to the conversation. Great. Hey, let's start with this. What's your sort of earliest memory of reading or books being something that was transformational or important to your life? Yeah, such such a great question. Um, for me, books and reading were always something that was important. Um, and uh, in my house, I'm the oldest of four kids. Um, I grew up... Um, uh, in a, in a family that really prioritized learning. I mean, we didn't mm. have a tremendous amount of resources um, at home, um, but there was a lot of love in our household. My mom and dad um, really prioritized, um, you know, uh, exposing us to all kinds of learning opportunities. I remember when I was mm. a, a little kid, my dad was working nights. He's a retired deputy sheriff and he would come home on wow. Saturdays and he would frequently take me to the public library. Um, we would also go to Haslam's bookstore um, in St. Petersburg, Florida, where I grew up. And, um, you know, for, uh, for not much money at all, you could get some great used books. Um, so I grew up being surrounded um, by access to, um, to books and, um, and literacy opportunities. And I remember like the first book that I genuinely fell in love with um, actually, a teacher gave me a copy of Bridge to Terabithia when I was in, I believe, fifth grade. And remember, that was the first novel I really I read and I just really loved that book. And, and I think that more than anything, that kind of kindled um, my excitement um, about about reading and about, you know, the doors that that can open in terms of possibilities. Yeah. Of people. I actually got I actually got a little chills when you're telling that story because it, it tapped into my own memories of just like early books you know and those and when there was still magic in the world yeah and, and yeah. books were a portal to um to magic to yeah and, and and even in your story you started by saying we didn't have a lot of resources growing up i mean we so much of our work here at teach a kid to read is is helping people understand the connection between poverty and uh, illiteracy and lack of access. Can you kind of just talk about how your family was able to transcend that gap? If that's what you meant by resources, I'm-, I'm Yeah, I'm it's ab absolutely what I meant by resources. And 
You know, what we know is that one of the best ways to disrupt generational poverty um, is to focus on early school success and specifically making sure that more kids are reading proficiently, certainly by the end of, of third grade. And for me, my, my personal story um, is a lot to do with the power and the transformational impact of education and learning um, on an individual's life outcomes, um, as well as the trajectory um, for my family. And, um, you know, that is a, I, I think that education and learning, learning specifically has the power of doing that, not just for individuals. There are, right. there are many stories of individual lives that have been transformed um, through the power of learning to read and through education. But I think I've, what I've seen that has been so powerful is that that story can translate not just from a, a personal narrative about individuals, but for entire communities where communities, where neighborhoods can come together and entire communities can come together and transform the kind of opportunities that kids have access to. I love that. And um, the, the fact that your teacher gave you that book, that that was, you know, a, a gift sort of from outside the, the sphere of power of your family that it came in from a storm. And, you know, we, we had the privilege of giving away about a hundred thousand books to underprivileged communities last year. And we're looking at trying to give away about quarter million this year. Cause there really is something about having that in your hand. And so many families, they don't, they don't have the sort of gravitational pull within whatever their context is to, to bring those kind of resources in. And the fact that you had that and your, your family prioritized it. I mean, I love the story about going to the library and going to the local bookstore. So lovely. Um, yeah, and my mom, in fact, um, she she was the neighborhood babysitter during the summer, and mm -hmm. um, I like to think that I learned what I know about summer learning programs um, from my mother early on, and she would load us all up um, in a station wagon, um, 10, 12 of us um, from the neighborhood. We would go to the library. We'd go to, like, the movie day at the library. Um, we'd check out books. Um, we sometimes would uh, stop at the Ponderosa Steakhouse, and she would... The, where the manager would take pity on her and, um, you know, trying to, to take out nine, 10, 12 kids um, for lunch uh, for the 99 cent kids special. I don't think they fully anticipated that one woman would come in there with, uh, with that many kids <laughs> to get in on their, on their kids deal during the summer. But I think I learned in that, like, not just the power of books, which are critical and important, right. but also all the support that needs to go into um, making sure kids love reading are inspired right. are inspired by it um, and connected to other kinds of opportunities that support their healthy development. Yeah, so let's let's kind of jump into it then. Sure. I mean, you, I mean, you're a frequent guest on CNN, NPR, <laughs> not <C> frequent, <laughs> not frequent. No. Okay, no, you're no. an occasional guest on, <laughs> you know, these these national outlets that are reaching out to you to, and um, they're they're going, Ron, we need you to help explain what's going on. What is it? First of all, what is it that that sort of these organizations are asking? Like, what do they what do they want to know that they they feel like they need to bring you in? Well, I think what most people know when they hear the statistics about early reading, and we know that far too many kids um, and families are struggling 
um, with getting foundational skills that are, are that are required for success in education. I think what people also don't always uh, kind of fully zone in on or hone in on is the fact that this is not just a generalized crisis that exists everywhere in the country, but it, it is really a particular crisis that has to do with poverty and with mm. a lack of opportunity. Um, and that we know for many of our kids and families in this country are doing just fine. Um, but we haven't figured out, I don't think, how to solve this problem of poverty at scale. Um, and literacy and early school success um, are critical components of that. And, and, and frankly, like our best, our best shot that we have um, of helping disrupt this cycle and help um, more kids and families um, experience success, not only in school, but in life, um, it really begins earlier, it begins early. And the effects of poverty driven adversity start very early in life. And the fact that we live in a country where we can predict with a fair degree of certainty future outcomes based on where kids live um, and, and predict based on zip code what future outcomes are going to be for them. Um, I just find that morally outrageous and abhorrent. And I think and I know that we can do much, much better than that. And I think the realization that 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 kind of that kind of calculation really betrays what I think is sort of a fundamental bedrock promise of this country, which is that, you know, where you start in life um, shouldn't determine where you end up. Um, and, you know, to a large extent, what we're doing um, with the, the lack of educational opportunity, the lack of connections and awareness about what opportunities do exist out there, um, what we're doing is, is kind of um, really, I, I think, narrowing the possibilities for huge numbers of kids and families in this country. And I just, I find that to be something that we all need to get mobilized around. And one of the things I commend you and everybody who's working with uh, your organization around is, is that we've got to figure out ways to mobilize people around the commons, a common sense consensus issue. And, and that is that every, every child should learn to read um, and read successfully. And then they can make a successful transition to learning almost anything else. My dad always told me as a kid um, that, you know, if you can learn to read, you can learn anything. And um, he, he said that before <laughs> all the research that's been done and all the, the latest neuroscience and everything else. And and my parents, neither one of them, you know, finished college, went to college, and and um, yet they knew instinctively, they knew that that the path to a better life was through the door of the school and through the door of a high quality education, and and um, they they didn't know much about um, about sending me to college other than the fact that they set the expectation that I would go, right. um, and for that I, I am enormously grateful. Boy, there's that was a box car of truth loaded with implications. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not even sure which of the 20 important things you said there to jump off 
You said the outcomes are determined by zip code. Can you, can we just get to brass tacks? Like, what do you mean by outcomes? Well, I mean, you can, you can predict with a fair degree of certainty based on where kids live, what quality uh, school they're going to have access to, um, whether and to what extent they're going to uh, do well on a variety of educational measures, their health outcomes, um, whether they're going to uh, graduate from, uh, from high school and succeed. It's not that that is, that that is destiny, but when you look at you know, what are the best predictors, you know, those tied pretty closely to whether or not kids win a zip code lottery. Um, and, and the work that we do with the campaign for grade level reading um, really pushes back on that and says, you know, we as communities, folks who are living as close, the closest to the problem and to the solutions, um, the folks who are living closest to the, to, to these challenges and these opportunities are the ones who need to come together and mobilize and say, we can do better. We can figure out ways that more low-income kids can have a better shot at success. And what that looks like is, you know, making sure more kids are born healthy, making sure that prenatal um, through, through age five, all of the things that help prepare kids um, to be successful in school and to take advantage of what school has to offer we as a community need to get together to make sure more low-income kids show up on the first day of kindergarten. Um, schools are getting ready to start here in Maryland in, in a, a few weeks. Show up on that first day fully ready and fully prepared to take advantage of what school has to offer. That means comprehensive developmental screenings, early identification of issues around literacy and language development. We know very early on which kids are gonna struggle and the earlier we can intervene, the better. Um, we need to make sure more kids are showing up to school each and every day um, during the regular school day and year. And we know that for many kids, just that, um, at that regular school day and year of instruction is not sufficient to get them right. everything that they need to get to the milestone. So we need to surround those kids with additional learning opportunities and supports after school and during the summer. And like, there's a huge community role to play in all of this. And it's, it's one thing, you know, for folks to sit back and sort of blame schools and frame this only as a school problem. I'm a, I'm a former teacher and I would be the first one to say schools can and should do better um, and do better right. every day with every single student. But we have to come together as a community and say, that's not gonna happen here and get as many people together to say, Let's put a stake in the ground about the importance of this. Let's rally as many people as we can to an issue that you can get everyone to agree um, on. I've yet to meet a single person that says, hey, you know, that's not such a good idea. Kids shouldn't learn how to read. This is one of those issues we can mobilize around. We can build consensus. We can build support. And in a world that is far too divided right now and 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 issues that kind of polarize and 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 divide people this is one that we've seen communities all across this country mobilize around and and actually make some encouraging progress they're not all the way there yet um, there isn't a community i can point to with a 95 percent literacy rate or higher um, 
but they're folks who are really doing the hard work that it takes um, to get there. I want to, I want to hear more about that hard work and these places people are actually, because we, we can't, we can't just talk about how depressing it is. We also need right. to talk about that there's hope and, and there's, there's great thinking and great organizing, but um, we, there, I believe that there's this lie running around. Mm. Um, and I think, I think we think in formulas, we think about politics and formulas. We think about a lot of things in formulas and there's this formula that people have in their head that, that child plus classroom plus time equals educated or equals literate. And um, do you have any response to that, to that equation? Yeah. So there's a difference in my mind between schooling, which takes place inside the four walls of a, of a building that we call school over right. a, typically 180 days for a very limited amount of time and learning um, more generally yeah. and more broadly. And what we know is that kids only spend about 20% of their waking hours in school. So my question is always, what about that other 80%? And how do we, as a wider community, um, surround kids and families to say, we need to be filling that time constructively and productively? And, and to me, it has always been at the inter my work is always focused at the intersection of schools and the wider community. And we need, I think, perhaps a, a better and stronger compact and sense of partnership between and among families, schools, and the wider community um, where, where kids and families um, live. Well, then let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, sure. I think people have a sense of schools get you know the the role that schools are playing or supposed to play and i think people have a sense of families you know sort of ideally you know the story would be that there'd be encouragement at home and there would be bedtime stories and there would be you know conversations around the dinner table and those sorts of things though those things don't happen in far too many households in america um when people are living uh on the edge of poverty or below the poverty line um, but what, what, what is this, how does a community play into this? Like give, can you, can you put some meat on those bones as far as what does that mean? Yeah. So, um, I think the way that the community, you know, comes in is by providing support and help that is truly helpful, um, both to families and, um, and to schools. And, you know, I, I think that takes a very different form depending on where you are. And but I think there are some there are some common ingredients. And so first, I think this notion of quality teaching needs to expand beyond just the four walls of the school. And so quality teaching and learning can happen in a variety of different places. And so that obviously begins at home. Um, with parents who ha are equipped, who have books in the home, who have access to, um, to quality public library systems, um, to a, a range of opportunities through, um, through their neighborhoods and through the places where they live um, to connect with resources and support that, that help them. Um, and so there's a whole 
set of, I think, early learning experiences, whether that's in a formal um, childcare setting, a formal early learning setting, or um, and, and home-based or more informal learning opportunities. I think what's really clear is that there's also a need for more um, awareness just generally about early brain development, early literacy and language development. Um, those things need to happen um, during well baby visits. Um, those things need to happen so, so that parents know what to look for um, as their children are developing, what are the normal ages and stages of development? And a lot of that information um, is not as widely uh, shared and accessible as, 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 as needed. Um, I think there are lots of different institutions and organizations that can play a role in expanding learning beyond what might happen at home um, and what may, might happen um, at school. I think faith-based organizations and churches and others around um, in, in communities play a, a critical role um, in this. And I know you do a lot of work um, in, in that space. And I think that's critically important. Um, I also think that there are uh, programs like um, uh, Boys and Girls Clubs, YMCAs, other organizations that provide high quality after school and summer learning opportunities um, for young people that um, need to be um, part of this solution. Um, I think there are, there are great examples of places, the arts and cultural institutions, museums, science centers, places like that, um, that need to do a better job of being more accessible and open and, and um, reaching parents um, and families um, in their communities, and especially kids and families who need access to those services. I think learning can happen everywhere. And I really right. believe that um, that communities need to do a better job of kind of figuring out how to make the entire community a place for learning. I was in, um, in Boston visiting um, summer programs just a few weeks ago. And that is a place that I think has done a, a fantastic job over the last decade of systematically expanding summer learning opportunities for kids who need them the most and who don't have access to them and doing it really innovative and really innovative ways. So kids in um, kindergarten through third grade um, that I visited who are in an outdoor education program or a tennis program or any number of other things that are happening all across the city uh, of Boston, sailing, boxing, all of those programs that are now thinking about how do they take an intentional step to develop skills that kids need in the context of something that was fun and engaging and interesting for them interesting. during the summer. And so I'm really excited about some of the solutions that I've seen in communities around the country who've said, you know, we can come together and deploy resources differently in ways that are really helpful and supportive toward this ultimate aim of getting more kids um, who are who are struggling um, and who need additional time and need additional resources, uh, figuring out good ways of, of going about doing that in ways and in, in partnership perhaps that um, that may not may not have existed previously. That's that's great. Uh, the idea that a boxing program could be uh, a part of the educational arc, I think, is phenomenal and. 
And it be and be even to think in those ways. I don't. I, when I think about it, I think, well, we need we need after school reading buddy program. Like that's about as far as sometimes my imagination wants to go. And then it's like, no, no. There's these structures all over the place. There's all these yeah. passion projects that are happening that can be t- uh, energetic co-participants in yeah. the in the academic and educational arc of a child we just have to think about it in those terms so this is more than just distracting children it yeah. really is a, a more intentional experience i think tony what you just touched on is just so important because so many times in education my own reflection is we lead with what we know that kids need right so we're we're intent on getting them tutoring or high dosage tutoring and that's what we lead with or we're what we lead with the curriculum <laughs> And what a lot of programs are learning that we do work with is it's that you've got to start in the place where what is the young person really interested in? What is motivating? Right. What is engaging? Right. And if you lead with engagement and interest, then you as an educator, no matter what context you're in, you can right. figure out ways to incorporate and make sure that high quality learning is going to result from that skill development is going to result from that a kid's kids gaining kind of an understanding of what what it is you have to offer them, but meeting them where they are and, and leading with what's what's interesting and engaging to them. And I would say more broadly right now, we have a huge crisis in our country um, around the disengagement of young young kids and and families from school and we've got a we've right. got a well-documented crisis of chronic absenteeism um, we've got to think about ways of of connecting so that so reconnecting kids and families to school in ways that kind of help them um, we do a lot of work with a group called attendance works and they they have done more than I think anyone else in the country around this issue of like exploring the intersection between, showing up um, and attending school consistently um, and educational outcomes and really, and, and, and I think making the case for why, and it's a common sense thing, like kids have to show up to be able to learn, but this is a, a, one of those crises that should be like readily apparent right in front of us. You know, we know that kids are missing many districts, kids are missing 18, 20 days of school each and every year of their early, early school year. So if you add that up, kindergarten, if you miss 20 days of kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, you've missed effectively a half a year's worth of, of instruction. I mean, of course, kids are going to be behind. Right. Right. Um, And so there, there are things like that, that we can rally around and we can say, surely there are ways to address some of the transportation barriers, the health barriers, the other things, and as a community solve for that and then give our schools, our teachers, our principals a fighting chance at getting more kids to this milestone. Let's, let's, I, I want to get back to summer uh, yeah. in a second, but can you yeah. talk just a little bit about, okay, so one problem is attendance, just getting sure. them. Um, will they, can they get to school? Uh, based on whatever their their context is and their circumstance. But once they get into school, what does it look like to help to give principals and teachers a fighting chance? What What, what is it that they don't have that that we as a community can provide back to that community resourcing co- idea? 
Yeah, I think it has to start with, you know, asking the schools in your neighborhood and in your community what they need, what what help would truly be helpful. I think a lot of folks um, either want to blame schools or they rush to a solution before even asking Good. teachers or principals. So I think lead by listening is sort of something that I try to do as much as I possibly can. And I would encourage other people to do. Sometimes there are little things um, that schools and teachers and principals need. Other times there are big, big things that they need. Um, I think regular volunteering um, and, and not just volunteering to come in on a one shot, paint a mural, repair this or fix that, um, sustained focused volunteering that is that is working with individual children um, to support struggling readers. Um, a lot of teachers know what their kids need, um, but they're also not in a position to be able to individualize um, the way they would love to be able to individualize. Right. And sometimes having an extra hand um, right. to be, who's a regular to read to and with kids. Um, a great example of that would be um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, they've made a, a real um, significant investment in training people to read to and with kids to focus specifically on the skill of reading fluency. Um, there are a lot of complicated um, dimensions of reading instruction that lend themselves well to an expert teacher. Um, reading fluency and practicing with reading fluency, a, a trained volunteer can really hone in on that skill and can actually help um, significantly in that area in particular. So I would engage in that kind of dialogue as a, as a good first step and then figure out how you can mobilize around those issues that, that seem to matter most. Can you speak to one thing that we haven't talked to talked about much on the podcast is summer and um, sure. the, the real impact of summer slippage Absolutely. Uh, that happens in the lives of kids, but also the, the opportunities that summer presents that if that we're just not taking advantage of. So could you just uh, speak yeah. to that a little bit? Cause I know Happy that's, that's that. I spent a good chunk of my career on, on, yeah. on this particular issue. Um, and actually I was surprised to find out that the first study on summer learning loss actually goes back to 1906. Um, oh. So we have more than a hundred years of evidence to suggest that when um, kids take this long break during the summer, um, that, that some kids and families are okay because when the faucet of public support shuts off um, in the form of school, their parents and their families are able to turn that faucet back on and hook them up with all kinds of opportunities. Um, unfortunately, the, the reality is for many low-income kids, um, their families aren't in a position to be able to line up all the camps and do the summer scramble that most middle and upper income families do right. to figure out the care arrangements for their kids. And that has huge impact, particularly on literacy. And so if you look at the pattern within school districts, kids learn roughly equivalently um, during the regular school day and year um, when it comes to early reading, um, only to see and with low income kids, um, they experience um, a significant setback of about three months of learning, uh, of, of equivalency and, and learning over the summer months while their middle and upper income peers in that same school district sort of tread water, make a little bit of a slight gain. And so what you see over time is really a growth in the achievement gap between kindergarten and fifth grade 
a substantial chunk of that is attributable to this setback that low-income kids um, right. experience each and every summer. So the solution to that um, that I have seen most effective in work is to design high quality um, programs for the summer months that target um, low-income um, kindergarten, first, second, third graders um, with a fun, enriching summer experience, typically about a six-week summer program that includes the very best of what you would get in a camp experience or a Department of Parks and Rec experience right. with a high-quality learning experience focused on literacy and language development. And Good. kids that have access to multiple summers of that not only don't experience setbacks or losses, they actually experience gains and they come back to school more ready and more well-prepared to take advantage of what school has to offer. And you can actually start to see some real gap closing um, among, among those kids. So, you know, if that is a critical part of, you know, you talked about formulas earlier. If you're sort of creating an equation here of, What's it going to take to get a kid to third grade reading proficiency? Um, that's going to be one of the ingredients, one of the key ingredients. And the other thing I would say about third grade reading is you can't, you don't effectively tackle third grade reading by starting in third grade. Right. We have to have a pipeline of well-connected programs and opportunities for kids to get them to that lagging measure of third grade reading success because it is, it is something that, despite all of our efforts, have, has been stubbornly consistent um, over time. And it doesn't lend itself mm. to quick fixes or isolated programs. Um, we got a lot of folks out there running great programs that are all reporting good outcomes. And when we work with communities, I can always go find a program that's working for a few hundred kids here or another hundred kids there a few thousand and somewhere else. But what we don't have yet are models where those programs are connected to each other in such a way that they can not only produce good outcomes in and of themselves, but that they can add up to a population level impact on third grade reading and a metric like that. That's, that's really the work of these local campaigns as much as anything else is connecting these these solid high quality programs in such a way that they can produce a larger scale impact. Yeah. You talk about um, all the good research we have. We, we know what the problems are. We actually right. know what the solutions are. Uh, we have maybe a thousand local expressions across the country that are doing good work and influencing a, a measurable population of kids. And yet somehow, somehow every year we slip farther and farther down as a country, fewer and fewer kids are making it to third grade meeting grade level reading standards. Yep. And we all know that if you don't, if you don't make it to grade level reading at third grade, odds are you never will catch up. The, the process is, is consistently falling behind. And, um, I, I don't know, Ron, I, is, is there any hope? Like, uh, it's like, <laughs> like we're doing, we're doing all this work and all this research and it would, the problem's just getting worse. Yeah. My hope and inspiration is derived from communities that I continue to see 
plugging away at this and working really hard and producing results and making progress in spite of all of those challenges. And I find that to be incredibly encouraging and inspiring. And the, the closer you get to that problem, and you is also, you know, happens to be, you know, you get a lot closer to the solution. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we know, I think we know a lot about how to do this work for some groups of people um, in this country, namely people who have resources and generational wealth and all of those kinds of things. Schools are working right. pretty, pretty well for them. Um, what we don't know as much about, and I don't think yet we have the kind of public will we need is to do that for kids living in poverty um, and to figure out what it takes to put that together. And I, I'm, I am even more convinced that we need local leaders with expertise and talent who've been laboring um, around this issue for quite some time. We need to follow their lead. Uh, we yeah. need to empower them. We need to equip them. We need to connect them. We need to support them in ways that we, we sort of kind of almost reflexively want to do top down. And I think until and unless we support a bottom up effort in some really new and different ways, I don't think we're going to get there because that hard work of linking programs that are effective together right. um, and, and, and viewing our commitment, like really putting kids, individual kids and families and neighborhoods at the center of this work and then surrounding them with resources and support is a very different way of building a system um, of opportunity and support than to put other people at the center or the needs of other of other systems at the center of it. I, I just right. think we need kind of a fundamental reorientation there. Right. And I think local leaders are are the ones to follow and to support on this. Yeah, but it seems like, we're, yes, local leadership, but I'm not sure that people are talking to each other across communities or across from city to city, best practices, inspiring one another, helping each, helping us stay in the game. You know, I just don't know that that's happening well. Yeah. And that's something that the campaign is really trying right. to do as much as anything else. The campaign for grade level reading is to connect local communities to one another so they can learn from and with each other. And they don't have to start at square one. They can start at step four or five. And if they have a, a playbook, if you will, from other places, you know, each community is going to be a little bit different, but we're not that different from each other that we can't right. learn from or with other people. And to accelerate progress on this, I think that's, those are the kinds of structures a more highly networked structure um, that will connect people together. I think that's really um, that's really what I think a lot of community leaders want and need um, to be able to do this work better and more effectively. I love it, Ron. You've been you're so great. Um, this is oh, super encouraging. Uh, it's also it's also sobering. You know, is when we talk about it and realize that we, we, the, the educated, the, the few know so much. And yet so many of under-resourced folks are struggling so completely. Well, I think we all, we all could have a fair dose of 
humility in all of this. Work. Yes. I mean, there's something I learn something new every time I talk with a with a leader in a community who's trying to do right. this work. And I I think the more we can get out and see and learn, um, the better. And if we, you know, as we as we know more, I, I feel like we have a responsibility and an obligation to do more as well. So that's what that's what gets me excited. Um, about this work is yeah. is the notion that you know we have a, we have a responsibility to do better by all of our kids. Yeah. Before I let you go, is, sure. is is there one is there one last thought, maybe something that we haven't touched on at all, that you would like to leave our our community with? Just like hey, here's here's one here's a here's here's a fun thing that's happening around literature. Here's a, here's an idea people aren't thinking about, or here's something that I just love to talk about, or here's a short story, anything, just one last thought for us. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about the neuroscience right now. And I, oh, I, I don't want to geek out on any of that, but I mean, I think, um, I think let's, let's pay attention to like what's coming out within the research community about the science of reading but let's also look at the science of human development and how people learn and like the neuroscience and, and what we're likely to learn about not just reading, reading and, and uh, literacy in sort of a, a very narrow way within the United States, but globally right now, there's just been an explosion around um, new science and groundbreaking research on how people acquire reading, writing, speaking, listening, all the, the full range of literacy skills in a variety of different languages right. and cultures and contexts. And I think that's an exciting new vista, I think, into this issue that I'm, I'm excited by and, and paying a lot of attention to, um, to some of the scholarship there. So I would encourage people to kind of pay attention to that. And then also just some really practical stuff like I've also um, had some conversations about the promise and the potential of closed captioning of all things, like be setting all the television sets so so that closed captioning is the default and you have to turn it off versus um, versus turning it on. Like the 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 exposure of kids to words and language together in closed captioning with children's programming, I think, is enormously helpful and. As somebody who has a bit of a hearing problem and has had since birth, I wear hearing aids and I, I turn on closed captioning on most of the stuff I watch on TV yeah, anyway as an old person who's having a hard time with it. Right. But the benefits of that for kids, like that's such a simple, easy solution that, that, that helps. I mean, it's not going to solve everything, but I think if we're just really creative and open, I think there are going to be a lot of solutions all around us. Um, to some of the challenges and struggles here. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I lived overseas for years and all of my friends who were learning English, they would watch English movies and they would have the closed captions on and yep. that's how they taught themselves. They just taught themselves language. And it's such a, it's a, it's a, it's a technology that's completely paid for. Yep. It already is out there. Yep. It's, it's literally just taking your remote control and going to the right button. And yeah. It's, and, it's, and also I think there's stuff on the back end that can be done, um, to turn it on as the default and then you'd have to go in to turn it off. I think, you know, the opting out, getting people to opt out, you know, opting out of something is always easier than opting in. So there's some psychology there. Um, yeah. 
and something that I think we could do as a wider culture. But um, anyway, I mean, I just think there's a lot of exciting stuff on the, on the horizon here. Yeah. On the, on the neurology front, which is also something I'm interested in. Do you have, do you have one resource or a place people can go to learn more about it? That you yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just watching um, a lot of the research um, on neuroscience and brain development coming out of Stanford. Stanford seems like they're assembling a lot of folks yep. on early childhood development yep. um, and early brain development and also the center for the developing child um, at Harvard is another great resource. Um, there, there are just, it seems like every week there's, there's something that is coming out that enriches our understanding yeah. of, of early brain, brain development. And um, I think that has a lot of, a lot of promise and potential, but it also doesn't typically penetrate, you know, the within um, a broader or wider educational um, environment. And I think it's incumbent on all of us and researchers and others who are in and around schools to think about some some ways to do that translational work um, to put some of those ideas into practice. Great. Love it. I actually want to do an entire episode on neurology at some point, just just to discuss it because I think it's so fascinating. Everybody, that's Ron Fairchild. Uh, you can learn more about him at smarterlearninggroup.com and at gradelevelreading.net and his work. Um, fascinating. One of the one of the really great national voices who's collecting all the sort of research and ideas so that we can help every kid learn how to read, you know, and have, you know, teach a kid to read, give a child a chance. This is Teach a Kid to Read. Thanks for being with us. Teach a child to read. Give a child a chance. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm.